0: Hello and welcome to the Revenue Execution Podcast, hosted by Model N. Uh, today's show, we're going to be joined with Larry Walsh from uh, the Twenty One Twelve Group. Uh, Larry, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me back.
0: Yeah, yeah. Always, always happy to happy to chat with you. Um, for today's podcast, I wanted to dive right in and, Larry, and just spend some time talking about uh, what you call as behavior influencers. Um, give Give the folks listening in what you consider to be a behavioral, behavior influencer when it comes to uh, channel sales.
1: Well, when we talk about influencing attributes or behavioral influencers, what we're really talking about is incentives that, sh- that are designed to shape partner behavior or partner performance. So this comes in the form of everything from short-term sales incentives to market development funds Uh, To training programs and uh, resources, typically um, influencers are tiered off or that they're graduated, meaning that they're earned into, um, so that you create a carrot approach towards earning access or unlocking access to to different levels of compensation or um, enablement materials or rewards. That then, by their very nature of trying to unlock them, shapes the behavior of the partners to do things that they that they aren't doing already.
0: Okay, perfect. Make makes a lot of sense to me. Um, let's talk about some of the the major behavior influencers. How they how um, vendors can use them. Uh, you know, more effectively and how, if I'm a channel partner, how do I gain access to them? How do I, how do I participate in those influencers and maybe expand my leverage or use of those influencers? So let's, let's maybe start off with market development funds and talk about, you know, in general, what are vendors doing today and what can they start doing better um, with market development
1: funds. Well, uh, let's start with, with them, with defining MDF because a lot of what has happened over the, over the past several years is the, the the term or the acronym has been bastardized, um, from its original use, which is market development funds to marketing development funds or some marketing funding. Uh, Really, the thing that vendors are beginning to shift back to is using MDF exactly for its original purpose, which is investing in partners so that they can build new capabilities and expand capacities to grow their businesses and by virtue of doing so, create a better sales or revenue lift for the vendor. Um, The thing about Market development funds is that it, it is; they're also among the more regulated incentives in the business. So you can't just dole out money to partners. You have to have a system that creates some a level playing field or equity within with it, within the system, so that the partners have equal access or equal opportunity access, depending on their performance. The mistake that mm-hmm. uh, vendors often make, though, is that while they talk about uh, wanting partners to utilize MDF more because utilization of MDF typically leads to more sales and revenue and market share. Um, the reality is, is that they make the programs too complicated to access, um, the, the application process too difficult and too long, so that oftentimes if, if a partner comes to them uh, looking for MDF support, the, 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 um, the approval process takes too long and the window of opportunity closes. Or the expectations for performance, because all MDF requires proof of performance in order to, rec- in order to receive reimbursements, um, the proof of performance requirements are too high. Uh, and then the final stage of this is that the access to getting reimbursed is often too lengthy or too difficult. So vendors really need to work on how, uh, on simplifying their MDF programs, making them more accessible, making the rules of engagement for them clearer. Uh, and then also making them more efficient and expeditious.
0: Okay, that's one of the areas where at Model N we we help vendors with that. We help them um, track performance, understand what programs work well, which ones um, to deinvest from, so on and so forth. Who do you see out there that's doing a good job, or what sort of programs do you see that are actually a little bit surprising? Where um you wouldn't expect them to have the success that they're having
1: well i mean i not to name names um uh, because no no program is perfect um er, you know every program has some quirk that that they will they will nudge somebody the wrong way um but for the most part the the programs that are that are clearly defined meaning that there are clearly defined acceptable use cases, the application processes are automated, um, the approval processes are nearly automated. Um, you know, the, the, One of the things I, we find when we're working with vendors on MDF programs is defining what they care about and what they don't care about, meaning that um, within the rules, there are allowable expenses or allowable programs that automatically get passed through so long as they're under a certain monetary threshold. And then it's the it's when the request triggers up for a secondary approval or secondary review. That's typically standard, a you know, good practice. And then there's always room, to, you know, good programs that have exceptions that allow vendors to increase MDF allocations or awards um, are the ones that typically get the atten- you know get better partner attention because it allows them to do some really creative things. But it's it's typically the 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 Better ones that we see are the ones that have clear definitions that they're not fungible. Um, I give you uh, an example. Um, we worked on an, uh, we reviewed an MDF program where they were operating, they were managing it on uh, spreadsheets, and so and the the correlation of performance was that if they gave a partner an MDF award and they saw an increase in sales six months later, the MDF worked. And wow! And, and we looked at it, and we said, "Okay, one, you know, you know, what's the what's the rule? Um, you know, correlation does not equal causation." Um, mm-hmm. We looked at that, and we said, "Okay, not only can you can you not prove that, but you can actually you can if you were to get audited, you can't even demonstrate proof of performance." So there's that's what I mean by making sure everything's clearly defined. So there's another program we worked on where we went in and we saw a whole lot of golf trips. I mean, it was not not like taking customers out golfing to earn their business. I mean, buying tickets to the Masters. And you can say that that is a legitimate MDF purpose, but there has to be a clear a clear definition of what that actually means because the purpose all the MDF. With proof of performance, it's not just that you say that you did what you say you were going to in order to uh, mitigate the chances of gaming the systems uh, just to pocket MBF money, but you also have to demonstrate upfront and on the back end um, uh, what the vendor got out of their investment: number of leads, number of sales, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a you know, the, you know again. You know, if you clearly define what the expectations are, you have a much. Your partners have a better way of understanding what they need to do, and it also helps to automate it as much as possible, so that there's no confusion or lags in processing.
0: Yeah, MDF is no longer uh, the funding that it used to be. Right uh, back when we were cutting our teeth, it was a uh, an excuse to to go out and have have fun with with partners and potential prospects, and that's it. Well, that that'll going to events, going networking, whatever.
1: Yeah, I mean, you if you if you want to blame somebody for why we just can't use MDF as a slush fund, you know, uh, bl- you know, blame um, oh, what's his name, uh, the CEO of uh, Enron. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What's his name now? Ken. Um, is, it's going to bother me. Um, yeah. But but Enron. And those those big meltdowns of the early 2000s uh, were the ones that triggered the Sarbanes Oxley Act, which tightened up the ability to use MDF indiscriminately, and that's the reason why we're not supposed to use MDF for um, to send our you know for partners to send their people to vendor conferences because you're paying into the company that paid you, and so yeah. it's just it, it's revolving and that's no longer allowed under the accounting rules. And then there's other. There's other, you know, generally accepted accounting practices that also govern over MDF that have to be that that you also have, that companies have to be mindful of. So, you know, good systems. I mean, and I'll say this is that Model N does a really good job of helping to not just automate but main, main sure, you know, help maintain compliance. And so that's yeah. really you know a great value, part of the value proposition.
0: All right, uh, let's let's jump to rebates. Um, I, you know, I look at or us at Model N, the way we look at it is we want to be able to help uh, our customers with incentive management across the board. You know, if you're paying money to your channel, that should be considered an incentive and you should manage that holistically. So that's how how we like to look at rebates. how are – do you see any innovation in in rebates these days, or is it just, hey, this is like uh, email marketing. This is uh, the bread and butter for getting things moved through a channel, and, and the channel expects this, and we're going to do a good job with managing it, and that's how we're going to be better than our competition. How, what's what's kind of your view, and what's, what's happening in the market with rebates? It,
1: two levels on this. Um, there are partners out there that absolutely appreciate and depend on rebates as a part of their profit model, um, and they will continue to do so. And uh, accordingly, at that level, rebates serve as a valuable mechanism for moving product. So vendors, if vendors have a specific type of product that they need to either they want to they want to move a lot of inventory, they want to capture market share, they want to get the partners, they want to give the partners a selling tool for. for you know, typically associated with hardware, sometimes software, um, then rebates are c- exceedingly valuable. Um, the bigger question going forward is what role will, re- will rebates play in services offerings? So if you look at some of the pure play born in the cloud services service providers, they don't have rebate programs. Um, there's nothing truly to rebate against because their models are either a sell-through where the, where their, the, the partner is the one taken, taken possession, or they sell to where the partner is the one that's taking title to the service and billing down to the customer and sending their own pricing, or um, they're selling through where the paper is set by the vendor, and um, the paper and price is set by the vendor, and the vendor can manipulate discounting. So if you're seeing a little bit of, on the services side, where... Where pricing is established at the partner level or special pricing being set at the vendor level, which is negating the need for rebates. But you still see rebates as a really uh, powerful incentive for moving more traditional products, and I don't see that going away anytime soon.
0: Okay. Excellent. All right. Um, running down the list here of behavior influencers that you kind of recognize and call out, or you prioritize. Um, what would you, we've talked about MDF and rebates. What, what other behavior influencers do you think are, are worth spending a little time on talking about and why?
1: As a rule, 2112, when we work with vendors on developing channel programs or engagement models, we typically leave incentives and compensation for last. Um, what we find is that partners the, the truly engaged partners the ones that have their own business plans and, and well-developed profit models um, are the ones that appreciate things like pre-sale support and um, joint business planning and um, and and the territory coverage modeling as being more, uh, co-selling type of programs as being more valuable and and more worthy of responding to as an incentive than even some of the monetary rewards. It doesn't negate the value of the monetary rewards, but it does make a huge difference in their perspective because they have an idea of where they want to go. Um, And sometimes the rebates, if you're you're purely responding to, say, a rebate or some type of uh, short-term incentive, then it can those you know those can have the potential of drawing a partner off their plan more so than keeping them on it's not to say that they won't utilize those tools those incentive tools, but it, what it means is that it will they'll use them strategically rather than as their own driving force so what we, we find is that if vendors that that truly do engage in uh, joint business planning with the partners, they're selling with the partners, they're, they're helping to craft uh, focused and targeted sales plans. Those are the ones that actually get a lot of attention and a lot more return uh, return on investment. The other thing which is a bit more intangible is ease of doing business. And we just released a report on ease of doing business is available on our website um, that shows that, that vendors that are easier to do business with that the access to information the access to staff and resources uh, access to compensation those vendors are have a three three times the share of wallet in their partners business than those that are more difficult to do business with and conversely vendors that are difficult to do business with often have to pay more to partners to get the same level of performance so th- we find the ease of doing businesses being a Huge, a huge influencer on partner performance and the and the quality of a of a partner go to market relationship.
0: Yeah, if you're a vendor and say you're kind of middle of the road as far as you know ease of doing business and, and things like that, um, and you're looking at it and saying, "All right, I need to invest in programs." How do you balance increased investment while still saying, "You know what, I?" I need to keep control of my costs so that I can maintain margins How do you make that decision, and how do you prioritize you know the the moving from point a to point B where it's easier for you to do business with
1: first, let's acknowledge that simplicity is hard there's it's it's not it is not easy to be simple mm-hmm. and I think one of the problems within our within the, the corporate construct, particularly in larger organizations, they embrace complexity as a means of demonstrating internal value, that they have to do something for X reason. There is a, an internal requirement. There's a regulatory requirement. There's a legal requirement. And let's not get into the burden of lawyers. Um, but when you're talking about a mid-sized organization or a company that's, that's running in between, that they have a mix of incentives, they're kind of difficult to do business with, how do they balance out, it's, there's, there needs to be a staged approach to all this. Um, you, you, in fact, I'll, I'll share with you is that we're working with a company that's uh, trying to, to go to market um, through channels uh, with a, I wouldn't call it a complex program, but not a fully enabled program, um, we had to go back and advise them to strip it down, make it very flat, make it very simple, make it accessible, and to pay the partners. So basically overpay the partners in order, because you know, I, I can't say who, but I'll just say that they don't exactly have brand recognition in either the, the customer or the partner level so you overcompensate you make it simple you reduce the barriers to entry with the intent of bringing in partners and bringing in revenue and then phasing in requirements that will incrementally make it a little bit more difficult but that difficult that it's not to say that you're making it complex or onerous it is to create a barrier to entry so that you are truly reaching the you know more engaged or the more uh, the partners with the greater potential are de- de- uh, delivering the better return, and that's where you get the the, the notion of of tiered programs. And so it's it's, it's not an easy process. I, I tell this to vendors all the time that they, that there is no it's still one of my favorite stories when we first started twenty one twelve had a company call us up uh, saying that they wanted us to help them build a channel program, and we said great. And they said, yes, you know, we, need to, you know, we need to start producing revenue this quarter. Sure. You know, we, need a, we need a program and we need it operating in six weeks. I, I said, I'm, I'm, I wish you luck because the process, <laughs> yeah. the process is 18 months. And no, we haven't figured out a way of making it shorter than 18 months. We can do a lot in three months. We can do a lot in six months. But to get to that point of where everybody feels good and where you cross that inflection point of where channels are making more money than they're costing, it's an 18 month process. And eh, maybe yeah. 12 sometimes. But, you know, that's, that's, you know, it, I, I guess the, the bit of advice I give on, the, give on this topic is don't expect immediate results. You know, everything is incremental. And mm-hmm. the, the, the trap, the trap is rushing, making expedient decisions. For the sake of short term gains, and, you know typically those short term gains peter out pretty quickly,
0: yeah yeah, I think that's uh, good advice, uh, Larry, uh, thank you very much uh, for joining us once again on um, the revenue execution Pro- podcast. really, really appreciate your input and your time.
1: Oh hey, thanks for having me, David
0: No problem.